Welcome to the SEI podcast series. This event was hosted by Sustainability at Sydney in partnership with the Sydney Environment Institute. Thank you, everybody, for coming. Um, my name's Eliza. I'm the Biodiversity Management Officer for the University of Sydney. Um, I have been very lucky in that these wonderful people all said yes when I asked them to come along and talk about biodiversity uh, for this event. Uh, this event is a bit of a mash between the sustainability team, which is where I sit, uh, and lovely Isabel sits as well. She's part of the sustainability team, uh, and the Sydney Environment Institute. So a bit of a collaborative event for us to sort of celebrate and highlight Biodiversity Month. Uh, I'd like to take a moment at the beginning to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land that we're meeting on today, the um, Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. And the thing that I think I really want to highlight about our traditional owners and, and about our uh, First Nations people and Indigenous people in general is that the, the practices and the ideas of sustainability and biodiversity and caring for the environment really started with them. They, they knew how to do it. They did it well. They did it in such a way that they were able to get what they needed from the environment whilst also giving back to the environment what it needed to continue that on through, through generations. And I think that's a part of the story that we've been missing in the way that we've been interacting with our environment and a part of the story that I'm hoping that we're able to kind of bring back in. Now I would like to introduce our panellists. You guys to just quickly introduce yourselves and then we'll start asking some questions. Hi, my name is Catherine Gruber. I'm a researcher in the School of Life and Environmental Sciences. I'm a conservation geneticist, which means I'm interested in the impacts of conservation strategies on population resilience and trying to identify ways that we can improve the outcomes for threatened species, particularly animals. Hello, uh, my name is Lauren Cole, and I'm actually uh, an affiliate of the University of Sydney employed by Taronga Zoo um, as part of a program to design and deliver a co-branded uh, undergraduate degree that's a Bachelor of Science, Bachelor of Advanced Studies in Wildlife Conservation. Um, so this was a joint objective by both institutions to work together and really create a program that would um, skill students and prepare them to face the challenges of today and tomorrow, such as our biodiversity crisis. So, um, you know, we, we've, we've got our, our first graduates out there that are already working on tackling those challenges um, and looking to make a difference for um, the future of biodiversity. Hi guys, uh, so I'm Tristan uh, Sal from the School of Geoscience. Uh, I'm a senior lecturer over there and uh, I work on landscape dynamics and basically looking at how the evolution of the surface um, and how it has changed over millions uh, of years. And I'm interested in the link between the evolution of this surface and the evolution of life. Hi everyone, I'm Tom Van Doren. I'm uh, based in the School of Humanities and I'm one of the deputy directors of the Sydney Environment Institute. I am a philosopher by training originally and I, my work mostly focuses on communities' relationships with disappearing plants and animals. So how those plants and animals matter to them um, and what they're doing to, to try and stem those losses uh, and how, yeah, how those losses impact on um, traditional cultural practices on livelihoods and all those kinds of things, as well as asking philosophical questions about why biodiversity loss matters and why we should care and what sort of categories we should use to think about it. So, thanks. 
Hello, people. My name is Ed Cousins. I'm in the law school um, where I teach and research international and environmental law. Um, and I'm particularly interested in the ways in which international law and national law um, interact with each other, um, how international law is driven by national concerns and how international law affects um, national legislation. Um, particular issue areas that I, I'm most interested in, um, conservation of wildlife generally, um, alien invasive species, um, um, migratory species. Um, my main focus when I really drill down is in whales and whaling. Um, that's about it. Thank you. Uh, so as you can see, we've got quite a diverse panel, uh, which you know, provides some challenges in trying to come up with some questions to kind of get across all of these areas, but, but hopefully we have some. Um, I would like to start with Tristan, because when I think of biodiversity, and perhaps it is because my background is as an ecologist, I think of the variety of plants and animals, the you know, kind of species that we have around us. And if I'm thinking about the impact of the environment, I'm thinking about the things that are happening right now in terms of climate change. Um, but I don't tend to think of what is happening in terms of Earth's process. Uh, so Tristan, would you be able to go through a little bit of how understanding the Earth's geophysical processes can help inform and, and teach us a bit about biodiversity? Sure. I did my homework. So I'm really <laughs> Yeah, so I guess the idea is like, um, and I'm maybe going to do a kind of a kind of time scale uh, of how things evolved. But the idea is that uh, how we can basically relate the evolution of the Earth and the apparition of life and the diversification of life. So if we just uh, go back, the formation of our uh, universe is basically uh, about 14 billion years ago. Uh, we had to wait about like nine to 10 billion years before we start to see the formation of Earth. So of course it was an Earth that was not like the one we know at the moment, it was basically an amalgam amalgamation of rocks, uh, hot rocks. Uh, and from this, uh, so it was about like 4.6 billion years ago. And the apparition of life, uh, at least the first evidence that we can find uh, in the fossil records, date back to 3.6 billion years ago. So not so far after that, so about like, let's say, less than one billion years. So one billion years for us, of course, it's difficult to apprehend, but like, you know, it's, uh, it's still uh, quite uh, short. And for this to happen, uh, we had to add specific processes that started to develop. So the first one was uh, the formation, or, or if you want, the, the cooling of this uh, initial crust that formed, and the apparition of uh, an ocean. Um, and uh, basically the apparition of the atmosphere. And from that, uh, we started to have the, the condition uh, to uh, have the life that started to evolve. So over the last, so from like 3.6 billion, or 4.6, sorry, 3.6 billion years uh, to uh, basically uh, 500 uh, million years ago, uh, the evolution of life basically uh, remained in the ocean. Uh, we had like a start of diversification, but this diversification really kicked off when uh, we had the plate tectonics that started to, uh, to, to develop. And also when we started to have some, uh, I guess, uh, uh, dioxygen in the atmosphere. So prior to that, it was really like a, a 
very simple life form, and we had to wait for these two main triggers to start uh, seeing like a blooming of life. Up to like 500 million years ago, so we go from 4.6 billion to 500, all this life remained in the ocean. And we see the apparition of terrest terrestrial life uh, through plants by uh, about like four, four, 400, 450 million years ago. And this is known as a, a great Ordovician biodiversity event. Uh, and basically, uh, the, from this time, uh, we started to have like the evolution of terrestrial life with many episodes of mass extinction. Um, and to give you an idea, basically, the, uh, the oldest remains that we've got of Homo sapiens uh, in, in Ethiopia is dated back to 200,000 years. So it gives basically an idea of, you know, like how this evolution of the biodiversity that we see uh, present is actually can be tracked back to like the evolution of the Earth. So if I had to give like two main or three main reasons why I think um, this, uh, this, uh, there is this strong link between biodiversity and our science, even if you know, it was not that obvious initially, uh, I think like one of the three main reasons is first the fact that we can find on Earth uh, liquid water, and this is like really peculiar uh, to, to our planet, and this is related not only to the fact that uh, uh, due to the position of the Earth, uh, you know, uh, and its distance to the to the to the Sun, uh, but also uh, uh, it's related to also the climate of the Earth. And this climate has been also modulated through uh, plate tectonics. And so if I had to say, I would say that liquid water is a primordial, uh, primordial factor uh, and, and, at help, and basically it helps to develop life, but not only life, but intelligent life. Uh, and that's really something that uh, we don't know if there is other life, for example, in Mars. But uh, I mean, this is the only place where we know there is life. And it's not just life, it's intelligent life. And that's uh, something with, which is uh, quite important, I, I think. Um, so after this, uh, this um, I guess, uh, after liquid uh, water, I would say that the second most important thing will be plate tectonic because uh, it's going to be on millions of years, I mean, million years timescales, which is what I'm used to think about. Uh, it's basically, uh, it's going to have a huge impact on carbon uh, cycling. And it will help to basically uh, regulate the, the temperature of, our, of the atmosphere and of the Earth. Uh, and maybe to give uh, something which is not uh, that uh, uh, straightforward when we think about the main points, I would say the moon as well. And the moon uh, for the reason that uh, first it helps uh, uh, to, uh, uh, to stabilize the axis of rotation of Earth. And without this stabilization, if we had like shift in poles, it will have a huge impact on climate. And we all can, not, can notice that you know climate change is having a huge impact on uh, on, uh, on on biodiversity, and also because it drives tides. And uh, one of the uh, uh, guess or hypotheses that we have is that basically uh, it's in this uh, tidal environment that basically uh, life managed to move out of the ocean and start to migrate into the continent. So I will say uh, that will be uh, my, uh, my three points. I can keep going. <laughs> I've never really thought about that relationship before because it's, it's just so 
foreign, I mean, even those timescales realistically are so foreign to what I think about when it comes to even just evolution and ecology in, in the sense that, that I've been thinking about it. Um, and I know that your work uses a lot of computer modelling to, to go through those processes. And I think this is where the, I have the link in, in the reliance on computer science between your work and your work, Catherine, in, in genetics and that you use a lot of computer work there to help with the population genetics, which kind of feels a little bit analogous between, you know, those processes in geological timescales and how you're looking at populations and, and their genetics. Yeah, absolutely. The, um, the types of um, computational modelling that can inform these long-scale, big geological questions can also be used to answer questions on shorter timescales. And I think this walk through the origins of the Earth has really given us a, a beautiful perspective on how special a lot of the, uh, the world is that, that we live in. And um, it doesn't take much to remind us also that the diversity of landscapes across the planet is also another way of thinking about biodiversity. So if you think of a, a coral reef or an alpine environment or a desert or forest, uh, these are the the ecological diversity that we have on, the, on this planet. And, and we can take a step down again to, to think about the variety of animals and plants, fungi, bacteria, uh, all different things that are living in those ecosystems. And, and so there we're sort of talking about species diversity. And then you can go even further down to the genetic biodiversity, uh, which is the level that I'm mostly working at. Um, and there we're looking at the variety of forms within a species. So it might be uh, different variants of individuals and populations. If you've ever had the experience, I think we've all had this recent experience of, of a disease going through a population, <laughs> you know, and, and some people seem to get really hammered by it and others seem to just brush it off and others don't get it at all. That is exactly the, the sort of within species, within a population diversity that uh, geneticists are interested in. And by sampling or studying that kind of diversity, using computational models to try and understand what are the geological drivers that have shaped diversity across time and across space, you know, across different regions, different ecosystems, that teaches us about the biology of those plants and animals, and it also teaches us about their vulnerabilities to our human changes that we are imposing on the environment. So when we uh, change the landscape in one way or another, um, you know, development or climate change or these other things that, that human activities have done over, over the centuries as well. We put populations at risk because they lose that resilience, they lose diversity. A population that is smaller has less variation, less ability to respond to new changes. So that's, that's the level that um, the population genetics is starting to, um, is, is, is integrating into this, into this long geological story. And with a variety of new techniques, new analyses, statistical modeling, computational making predictions, looking at genomics as well, huge data sets to understand species, understand how they respond to human activities, not just the harmful ones, but also when we do actions to try and improve conditions. So maybe we're trying to restore a habitat or put some animals in a place where they might be better able to thrive or bring animals into a zoo. We can make predictions about 
what the likely outcomes are of those activities so that we can target them in the most effective ways. Yeah, I think that also touches on, again, the important link there between both of your work is that being able to do these things, one, in real time is impossible um, because you can't get that kind of time scale on, on you know, your nine to five. But even just sampling at the level that you would have to sample at to really get the picture in reality of, of what that variance looks like is, you know, an, an enormous challenge in and of itself. I'll just go to Lauren, because you work at the zoo, you work in, in, in um, part of the kind of teaching around the conservation side of things. And I guess one of the things that's been really noticeable to me over the years is that zoos have moved from that very traditional, come and have a look at this thing, it's cool, to come and have a look at this thing, here's why it's important and here's what we should be doing. Do you find that that is something that is really being embraced and I guess taken on and appreciated by the broader community or is there still a little bit of I guess conflict there with you know why do we have a panda here when it's really hot and you know we don't have bamboo? Yeah, 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 absolutely. That's a great question. Thank you. And I think zoos in general are still on a journey towards finding what our um, our purpose and our mission is as time goes by. So zoos, or I suppose menageries of animals, have existed for thousands of years in many different capacities. And it's actually fairly recently, up until probably the end of the, the Second World War, that zoos really started seeing their place as a opportunity for wildlife conservation more than just, um, you know, in some cases historically signs of prestige or an opportunity to see something that you wouldn't see before purely, um, really now focusing on that conservation and that education piece. So um, it's, I think since the Second World War, there's been a big push for zoos to kind of look at their, um, you know, place strategically in rebranding from um, just a menagerie of animals to a conservation hub and really putting that in the forefront and I think also trying to distance ourselves from some of those former conceptions of what zoos used to be. And I think where that goes forward is that zoos really put this social license to operate in the front of everything that they do nowadays as well and saying that in order to support the conservation work that we do, we need the support of society. And you know that's really being better about communicating what we do, but also, I think also seeing our responsibility as making conservation accessible to everyone and making conservation education accessible to everyone. Um, so just really kind of bringing conservation into the center of everything we do while understanding that we're still also going to be um, important places for people to gather and to learn and to, you know, we are a tourism destination as well, but trying to bring all of those different pieces into the fold. Um, so I think when most people think of zoos and what we do, um, you know, conservation breeding is obviously a big part of that, maintaining these populations. And there are a significant number of species that zoos have played an important role um, in saving from going extinct. Um, but some of the other things that zoos are trying to do and make the public aware of to kind of increase that social license to operate is, um, you know, even the amount of uh, funding that they contribute towards conservation efforts um, in situ as well. So they're one of the, the top three biggest contributors globally to that kind of funding. Um, and then I think focusing socially as well, looking at engaging with communities and things like that. Um, Zoos are, and probably increasingly so, one of the main ways that people engage with nature. 
particularly in urban environments, it might be one of the only places that people go and actually think about nature and think about wildlife and think about those sorts of different things. So we really want to be an atmosphere to engage people in those things and get them thinking about it. And zoos around the world are doing this on an amazing scale. Prior to COVID, we're probably almost back up to this number now, but it's estimated that more than 700 million people visit a zoo every year. So embedding that conservation messaging and education can have a massive impact in driving the decisions that people make. So, you know, when we get these people that don't have a lot of direct interaction with nature normally coming in, we want to use the zoos as an opportunity to create that emotional connection with wildlife that then drives them to ask those questions about what role can I play in conserving biodiversity. So I think that's really the shift in the society that we're looking for is getting the buy-in from them, but then also saying what can we do to help them um, see their role as change managers and that we all can play a role in conserving biodiversity. Yeah, and it's brings me over to Ed and Tom as well, um, because just one of the points that you mentioned about accessibility there and, and, you know, having that access to education, you know, also makes me think of there are issues with having access to being able to protect these things in situ in the various different spaces that, that you know, these species uh, inhabit. And that makes me think of kind of the legal sort of ramifications, but also the public sort of ramifications of, you know, if species don't follow borders, how do we manage that when we have our migratory species or when we have our invasive alien species? How do we manage that in terms of sort of the legality of it, but also how do people perceive that and kind of interact with that? And, and you know, when we've got invasive alien species, can you two comment on sort of those sides of the story? Okay, um, so how do I summarize my entire life's work in a few sentences? <laughs> it's just an easy question. The, the challenge, the main challenge is um, for us is trying to design laws, both national and international, that will be appropriate for purpose and that people will follow and obey. And that's more difficult to achieve than one might expect. People really will only follow laws if they are invested in them and believe in them. Otherwise, people will always find ways around them. Um, I, one story I'll, I'll, I'll tell um, is of a, an international treaty that was adopted in 1900. And it was called the London Convention on the Preservation of Wild Animals in Africa. And it's a, a fascinating treaty to look at because had it ever been successful, it would have been a complete and utter disaster. Now, what happened was this. Um, the colonial powers at the time, France, Spain, Portugal, Great Britain, Germany, um, met around a table and created this treaty which was to govern essentially all African colonies in the middle of the continent. And the idea was that there would be a single set of rules that would cover all of these different jurisdictions. Now, the reason I find it such a fascinating treaty to look at is because you can use it to locate exactly what scientific understanding about biodiversity was at the time. 
you can see that where the parties committed themselves firmly, for instance, to protecting vultures, protecting vulture eggs, you can see that they had understood that vultures were extremely important and that they clean up diseased carcasses, dead animals, prevent diseases running through the African bush. But then at the same time, you can see in the same treaty that the parties had committed themselves essentially to exterminating hyenas, to um, reducing the numbers of crocodiles, destroying crocodile eggs. You can say the scientists who were advising the diplomats um, did not understand at the time that hyenas and crocodiles perform exactly the same function as vultures. At night, the hyenas operate. In the water, the crocodiles operate. So they're doing exactly the same thing. No logic behind protecting vultures, but destroying or damaging crocodiles and hyenas. So I, th I think it's interesting because had that treaty ever been fully implemented, I think you'd have seen a grotesque ecosystem collapse in the, the countries. But it wasn't. And that, that's important. Where it's valuable for us now is just to look at that and say, we can see exactly what the scientists giving advice to lawyers and diplomats understood at the time. 100 years later, 120 years later, we have far more complicated environmental problems to deal with. Um, we also have many, many more interest groups whose voices need to be heard. And we need to find ways of designing laws that incorporate those interest groups, those lobby groups, those voices that are passive, as well as the voices that are loud. That's the real challenge, is getting people involved and getting people to put their knowledge forward and ensure somehow that that knowledge is captured in the laws that then are put in place. Okay, that was my long-winded answer. Um, so I don't work on the law, although I have worked on vultures, so that's a nice, uh, <laughs> nice connection. Uh, but in, in India, not in Africa. Um, and, and I guess that yeah, vultures are a very nice example of my interest, which is more in uh, how to communicate to people, or communicate and think with people about why biodiversity loss matters. Um, and I think that really the, my, the aim in my work has been to try and thicken the public understanding of what uh, extinction or the loss of species means and why it matters. Um, and so partly that's about these kinds of ecological stories, that the services that vultures provide is uh, a really vital part of why we might think that they matter. Um, but there are a whole range of other reasons, and I th so you know, we might want to draw out the, the cultural significance of a particular species. In India, for example, thinking with the vultures, um, they've played a really important role in containing the spread of disease, in part through that scavenging work. Um, they also have played really important roles for the Parsi community in helping to dispose of the dead who are uh, exposed to, to vultures in towers of silence in Mumbai, or, or they once were, but with the decline of vultures, that's no longer possible. Um, so that there's this really important um, breakdown of a religious cultural practice as these vultures have declined. And then, of course, there's all of what the philosophers like to think about as intrinsic value, all of the, the reasons that these uh, species might matter just in and of themselves, even if they're not 
particularly good for anyone if, if they're not you know, doing anything particularly useful? Do we have some sort of an obligation to, to hold on to them anyway? Uh, and I think just trying to communicate that kind of value is complicated. And so my work has really been about storytelling uh, in a way that draws in the ecological sciences, draws in uh, work with communities about what, why these species matter to them, uh, and that tries to, to give these, these fuller accounts of what's being lost and why that matters. Um, and then to communicate that broadly. So you know, that uh, sadly can't usually be done in academic journals. Uh, it's not a good forum for communicating broadly. Um, although, uh, you know, obviously a very important place to be thinking and in conversation with colleagues. So increasingly my work is exhibitions and um, broadcasts and podcasts and classroom resources and all of these other kinds of things that think, uh, that share these ideas with, with other people. So I think I've drifted quite away from your question, but I, I guess it, what I'm get, coming up from the side is this issue of uh, the, the different ways in which publics understand biodiversity and why um, it may or may not matter. And I think one of our biggest challenges is just getting people to care. Um, yeah, which I, I think boils down to communication and, and getting that understanding of, of the different levels of things uh, across to people uh, and the appreciation in, in the terms that they understand most. And I was talking about this just today, that in, in a business sense, I don't have a business background, so communicating the value of biodiversity in, in a business in terms of risk and opportunity. Um, but yeah, I think communication is, is one of the things, and I'm gonna go back to, to Tristan and Catherine here. One of the things also that I, I guess I'm wondering about is, you know, how can our understanding of, of the um, genetic future of a species but also kind of the geological future of, of a, a species in terms of what's going to happen in, the, in their location. How can understanding that sort of help give us a better picture to kind of draw all those disparate groups in together to understand, you know, why you should care about it in your space and they should care about it in their space if together, you know, we're going to end up in this other space. I think yeah, conservation of biodiversity is a very complex uh, endeavor. And you know that, that's why it's wonderful that we have um, so many diverse people here on the panel. Uh, when I think about the role of genetics in preserving, maintaining, managing threatened species, uh, I'm always mindful that it is just one piece of the puzzle. So uh, genetics can tell us about uh, how what the evolutionary history of a, spe of a species was, how this species relates to others, uh, whether this species has relatives in other countries or in other places, how it may have changed over time, what the status of that population is now, whether it's uh, likely to be at elevated risk or whether it's going to be okay. And then we can feed all of that information into a risk assessment that really does have to take on board a lot of these other different perspectives about what's feasible, how, um, what are our options, how much do they cost, and uh, what, is the, what is going to be the impact of some of our activities on other species as well, for example. What do communities value? How would they prioritize things? And that risk assessment really does need all those uh, voices to come in. And um, you know, it's just a little bit like what you were saying as well, and trying to make sure that we hear the, the loud voices, but also the soft voices um, in 
trying to make sure that we, we prioritize actions in a way that are going to deliver um, value for communities and also, yeah, for those species that we're trying to preserve and the ecosystems that extend from those and all the, the complex relationships that we uh, honestly, for the most part, barely understand. So, um, yeah, it is a, it is a very um, multidisciplinary thing. And uh, I, I think it's useful to think about how each piece is a, is a part of the puzzle. Uh, yeah, so, and I was going to uh, talk a bit about uh, what Ed just said. I, I want, I'm, I'm curious to know uh, who were the scientists that were involved in these treaties. Because back, at, back in these days, already, like if we think about uh, someone like uh, uh, Van Humboldt, uh, there was already like so, you know, mid uh, 17 to 19, 19th centuries, basically. There was already like uh, a lot of people who knew, uh, you know, the connection uh, and the fact that there was like uh, uh, quite a, a balance between uh, biotic and abiotic uh, factors, and that you know, there was like a kind of connection, and everything was connected. Uh, so the idea of uh, killing one species, uh, you know, for I guess even at that uh, at that time would have appeared as completely absurd to some of the scientists. And it comes back to what you are saying about like you know who are the people that are uh, you know that that people that are actually. Uh, 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 getting hurt by others, uh, and potentially that's that's one of the reasons, and that's what we see actually with climate scientists nowadays, where you know there is a lot of people who are just like uh, completely depressed because they've been saying the same thing for the last 30 days, 30 years, and, and nothing has changed. So, so I think like uh, you know there is a requirement for 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 us to uh, basically uh, design uh, laws uh, that. It's not my, uh, my expertise, <laughs> but uh, basically to, to hear what everyone has to say about it, and, spe and especially like, uh, uh, you know, First Nation people, uh, and also looking, yeah, that's good, we've got uh, quite a, a cross-disciplinary, I think like another, another, if we could have had another chair, you know, I think like people from art uh, will also be super important to, you know, to think about that. Uh, and I don't know what was your question, but... <laughs> No, no, it's, it's, it's all related, I think. Um, and that's, that's kind of the point, is that there's, there's so many areas and people and industries that are invested, uh, even if they're not totally aware of the level of investment that, that they actually have, that will be impacted on by the changes that are coming, the changes that have happened, the laws that are coming, the laws that are changing, uh, and being able to be a part of the discussion and make sure that you know, everybody is heard to, to the extent that they need to be heard is, is really important, I think. Shall I respond very quickly? Yes, yeah. Tristan did say he'd like to know who those scientists were. Um, yes, in the late 1800s, we certainly were getting an understanding of the importance of relationships between species. Um, but it was in its very, very early days. And the scientists advising government, and especially the the, the managers of wildlife areas. We, it only was in the 1890s that we really were starting to protect areas for their own sake um, or for the reservation of certain species for elite interests. Um, that's really where we got our first game reserves and so forth. 
Um, I'll tell you about another treaty two years later in 1902, the Paris Convention on Birds Useful to Agriculture, which divided all birds into two lists. The list of birds useful and the list of birds that were noxious. And that was the word actually used, N-O-X-I-O-U-S, meaning toxic, poisonous. And the parties committed themselves to destroying these birds. And the, when you look at that list, it is staggering. You'll see um, birds on it like the peregrine falcon, um, birds like the, um, the bearded vulture, the birds that today we see as incredibly rare. There just wasn't the same understanding at the time that you needed to protect all species. Managers in Africa especially, of um, game reserve type areas, thought that they would help herbivores to revive by killing as many predators as they possibly could. So Major James Stevenson Hamilton, the first manager and, and the warden for 46 years of what is now the Kruger National Park in South Africa, one of the most important game reserves in the world, spent years killing every predator he could see and the, in the belief that this would ultimately help the prey species to recover from the, or the, the state people had left them in. To his credit, over time he realized that it wasn't working and that what you needed was a balance. I think, I think that's yeah, a really good point. Balance is definitely something that you need. Lauren, bringing this back to zoos, how exactly are zoos able to or how are they going about you know, trying to get these advances in our understandings of these interactions as part of sort of not only how they're communicating things, but also those co conservation programs with the, the captive breeding and, and such. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's a great question. So I think zoos historically as well um, often operated as their own entities and it was sort of they looked after the populations that they had and there wasn't, again, that long-term goal of conservation. So genetics in particular often fall by the wayside. And increasingly what zoos are looking to do is move towards this idea that's called the one plan approach to biodiversity conservation. And that's moving away from the idea that um, in situ and ex situ populations should be managed separately. That sort of, you know, you work in a zoo, you manage your captive populations, you look after them. You know, you're in a field ecologist, you're looking after that habitat, you look at the species that are left in the wild and looking at how the lack of communication between just those two areas was causing um, big issues and actually creating useful conservation outcomes. And now organizations are really looking towards that one plan approach that we need to be managing them as an entire population, not only genetically, but just from a, a management perspective. And now that one plan approach is looking even beyond that and building on some of the things that Ed mentioned. It's sort of even looking at, all right, out of besides the people that are just looking after the species directly, how does that, how do we use this working collaboratively to make one stronger voice that's communicating one single message instead of everyone coming at it from the different perspectives? And that can help drive change and help create um, informed decision making for the futures of these populations as well. I think that's a very difficult, <laughs> a very difficult. Working towards. <laughs> yeah. And um, wants to bring me back to kind of touching on the legal frameworks around even trying to achieve something like that. How do you navigate, I mean, apart from trying to get everybody on board, you know, are there any examples of, of where this has been done 
in a good way um, in, in how we're managing, you know, threatened species or anything like that in terms of legal guidance. Sorry. <laughs> um, law, law in theory is neutral and it's, it, it provides a way to bring all of the, the other concerns or the other interest areas together so that you, you can, in theory, um, mandate consideration of all relevant views and the views of interested and affected parties by using law. And we are seeing that. Um, we are seeing more and more legal requirements to take into account the interests of different role players. Um, I, I sometimes think of the, the word stakeholder, which is used today to mean um, you know, somebody who's involved, who has a stake in something. But when the word began, it really meant the stakeholder was a neutral party who would hold the mining stake while the parties fought about who actually owned it. And in law can play that function. Law can, can provide a way for a, to guide a decision maker as to which voices should be heard and how much attention should be given to each one. The real challenge is now not um, to, to recognize the rights of different voices to be heard. That was the early and more in the easier part of the battle. The more difficult part is what we're now in, where we're trying to decide um, you know, how much value to give to different voices. So if we have, for instance, a situation where a developer wants to put up a, um, a shopping center and the shopping center will be built on a wetland, that's the proposal. And we can say nowadays there's a growing concept that future generations are an interest group whose, whose interests should be taken into account. But how do we do that? We don't know what their desire is. Would they prefer to have the wetland left so that they can make a decision? Or would they prefer to be born into prosperity because there was a development earlier on? We just don't know. So it's very difficult to take those into account. And that's what we're now battling toward. Tom, do you have any comments there in terms of, I guess, cultural <laughs> aspects and, and kind of that, you know, intergenerational thinking of how we're interacting with spaces and the value of, of biodiversity, I guess, long term? I think the long-term thinking is, is one of our biggest challenges and you started us off Tristan with some, some big long-term thinking um, but and then projecting into the future is obviously uh, you know, the same sort of challenge in the other direction. Um, yeah I, I think it's not a, not a topic I've spent a lot of time um, trying to figure out how, how to grapple with the, the needs of future generations. I think it's we have enough trouble grappling with the diverse opinions of current generations, and, and um, but I think it is something that that is increasingly uh, important, and that we obviously need to do, but and do it differently, obviously in different contexts. Whether we're talking about climate change or how to live with nuclear waste or biodiversity loss, um, those all implicate future generations in different ways. But I don't have anything more. Hmm. So. And how would you say, or how have you seen? that those kinds of things are impacting people today in terms of, you know, culture and identity and, and that kind of thing. Lots of biodiversity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and having to live with nuclear waste as a thing. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
Well, in a whole range of different ways. Um, so, so I just finished writing a book about snails, which um, I discovered afterwards was not the best topic to try and write a popular book about, um, which I guess connects to our, our more general conversation about you know, public perceptions of biodiversity and, and how those perceptions really matter. Um, having spent a lot of my career working on endangered birds, I always found sort of ready audiences to hear about birds that were in decline and why they mattered. Snails was much more of a challenge. Um, and so, but what I found working particularly on snails in Hawaii, which most people don't know, um, maybe there's no reason they should, uh, that Hawaii was once one of the centres of biodiversity for snails around the world. There were, there were at least 750 species of land snails just in the Hawaiian Islands, which is a, a huge number. The, the whole of North America uh, only has about an extra sort of 300 species. So it's, um, it was a very, a very dense, diverse, snaily place at a time. Um, but just in the last 150 years or so, two-thirds of those species are gone. Um, and most of the rest are critically endangered or in danger of really seriously disappearing. Um, but even amongst the snails, I was, I'm, I'm drifting off into snail land here. But I'm, um, I'm an invertebrate ecologist, I'm with you. <laughs> um, I'll, I'll wrap up quickly. Um, I was just fascinated to discover that it was still the big, bright, colourful snails that had been listed as endangered on the endangered species list. Um, and despite the fact that there are about 300 species left, um, the most recent assessment found that 11 species of the 300 were stable. The rest were all declining at one speed or another. Um, only about uh, nine species are on the, or 40 species are on the endangered species list, but most of them are extinct. Nine that are left are on the list. Um, so the other 280-odd have just not, you know, not factored. And most of them are these sort of unremarkable brown, small little creatures. But the big, bright, colourful ones have managed to find their way onto the list. So even amongst snails, that question of you know, charisma and beauty and appeal to um, it's all relative, um, really makes a difference. And so I think we, what, but one of the lessons to take away from that is we really have to take seriously the, the significant impact that public perceptions have, public values. And, and thinking with snails, I think, or, or with you know, other invertebrates is really helpful in doing that you immediately come up against the fact that we just know so little about them. We know very little about a lot of elements of our ecosystem, but we, we haven't even named, described, scientists haven't named or described uh, probably about 80% of the invertebrates. So if we haven't named them, we certainly haven't assessed whether or not they're in decline. Um, so we can't even begin to think about conserving them. So we immediately run into these sort of massive problems where the public perception public valuation of species ripples out into funding, into the interests that young people have about you know, going away and becoming an ornithologist or a malacologist, you know, a bird person or a snail person. And, you know, and clearly there are just vastly different amounts of people interested in doing each of those things. And so each of the, at each step of the way from research, you know, who does the research, who provides the funding, whether we've named them, whether we've got enough information to list them as, as endangered, um, invertebrates run into problems. Uh, and those are all sort of knock-on effects of the fact that the public are just much less interested. Um, so we, we really have to take that seriously and figure out uh, how to tell you know, different stories, how to do education differently, all of these uh, levels at which we might intervene in uh, what, you know, what ends up being cared for.
is a big difficult issue because invertebrates are, as E.O. Wilson, who's pretty unpopular these days, um, but he put it beautifully when he said um, that, that invertebrates are the little things that run the world, um, and a lot of them are playing really significant roles. A lot of them probably aren't, and that, in it, that is also really interesting and difficult, and how do we tell stories about species that maybe you know, aren't going to crash the whole system if they disappear? And certainly in Hawaii, we've managed to lose 450-odd species of snails, and I wouldn't say those ecosystems are healthy, but they're certainly not. But the, the decline of snails has not had an appreciable impact. So I'm going all over the place. <laughs> no, I, I think it's a really valid point, and I think it also highlights to me something that is also missing from, from this panel and one of the big problems is, is about plants and, and plant blindness and, you know, that we just see a wash of green but it's, it's really hard to tell this green grass from that green grass but this bright colourful snail, I can pick it out, that brown snail could be one of, you know, these hundred other ones that, that have all gone extinct. Uh, so I'll wrap it up. I'm going to ask one last question of Lauren. Sorry, I didn't prep you for this. <laughs> How do you see the zoo's kind of role? I mean, given that, you know, Taronga Zoo's logo is a cute, cuddly platypus, you know, mammal marsupial that you can think about cuddling and touching, and it's not, I don't know, a hideous, horrible spider or something like that. <laughs> what, what do you think the role is or... or what could zoos be doing to help kind of drive that change of how we're communicating what's important when it's so clear that if you ask for money for koalas, you're going to get money for koalas? Yeah, no, that's a really great question. And um, as a previous previous life um, plankton ecologist, I can relate to your um, snail conundrum. It's very, very hard to get people passionate about plankton. So I think, you know, that is a really big part of the discussion is that you know, again, historically, there's always been this push for charismatic megafauna, and that's even really still represented in the proportion of different species that we see in zoos, and the things that people want to come to zoos to see are a lot of those species, when really the direction that we're thinking for zoos is that, well, we're not about necessarily what people want to see anymore. We need to be focusing more on the things that need to be conserved, and that's not always necessarily our charismatic megafauna. So, you know, there's lots of different uh, groups of species, amphibians in particular, that are vastly underrepresented in zoos, despite the significant percentage of them that are now, many of them critically endangered due to things like chytrid fungus. So I think, again, there's a lot of work being done on behavior change theories in zoo, thinking about how we can reframe that conversation and thinking, you know, yes, maybe it's not cute or cuddly, but look at the amazing role that this really unique amphibian plays, and here's the different things that we can learn about it, and this is why you should care. And then, um, you know, like our corroboree frogs, for example, we, we do a lot of work around those and talking about, um, you know, not only the, the, the role that they play in the environment, but also their, their cultural importance, really highlighting those elements of it and making those connections to people and thinking about what are some simple things that we can do or at least think about to... Um, you know, work on towards promoting some of those species and bringing some of those species that might not, you know, be the first thing that you think about that you want to visit at a zoo, bringing them to the forefront and really looking 
um, more towards, um, you know, the like the New South Wales government, for example, has a list of species that we expect to go extinct within the next hundred years that we need to be prioritizing and looking at, you know, what can we do to be diverting resources and funding towards, um, you know, the recovery of those species, but again, finding that balance with what the public is going to, you know, want to come see and, you know, get feet through the door and get that funding and things like that. So I think it, it continually is um, a balance in a lot of the work that's being done on those on those species. Like we do, we also have a collection of snails that we don't have on display. Um, that's uh, you know another uh, another island population of species that they thought were extinct for decades, and they found a small population and they've been bringing them into the zoo and doing those those breeding programs with those. And you know they're they're not on display at the moment because it's it's quite new. But it's sort of like looking forward. How can we bring those to the public attention and tell the stories and these narratives of you know some of these amazing success stories that we've brought species back from the edge of extinction. And I think those are the the feel good stories that people also really need to hear, hear to remind us that not all hope is lost and biodiversity can still be conserved. Um, so I think really creating those emotional connections um, is a work in progress, but also really central to, to all the work that we're doing. Mm. Yeah, I think very much so. And I, I also think that one of the, I guess one of the things that's hard to communicate to people or maybe is, is missed is that, you know, if we keep going the way that we are going, we sort of are choosing what's left. And, and what we're choosing to remain is the things that are good at living with us, which might not be the things that we like, like cockroaches are really good at living with us and rats are really good at living with us. Uh, and so, you know, we continue the way we're going you know, koalas aren't so good at living with us. So the things that can't live in the environment that we're created are going to be the ones that go and, and being able to communicate that but also demonstrate that we can change things and we can support things to rehabilitate them <coughs> and to get them back into the environment is also, I think, a really, really important message that needs to come across, that it's not all over give up. We have the expertise, the knowledge, the ability to do these things. We just need the buy-in and, and the input. Uh, so I think now we'll take a few questions. Um, obviously, everyone here is from really different fields. I was just wondering, is there like a, a project or an example that comes to mind where you may have worked with, with maybe not with each other personally, but, but someone in that field and kind of so we can get an understanding of how that all kind of comes together with an example? No, not, not a project at all, but um, I'll, I'll just say one of the, the, the places law can perhaps be valuable is in mandating um, caution. Um, and I, I was thinking about something while Tom was talking, and a story I, I sometimes share with my students is from Hawaii. And it's a, a wonderfully colorful snail called the Wahoo tree snail, I don't know how I pronounce that word, um, but um, it's, it seems that people in Hawaii felt they didn't have enough snails, so they brought in um, African land snails as, to be decorative in their gardens, and the African land snail is carnivorous and began chasing the wahoo tree snail. Um, so uh, scientists then suggested that um, um, the solution was to bring in a particularly unpleasant creature called the rosy wolf snail from the United Kingdom, which they figured would eat the African land snail. Um, at which point, the Oahu tree snail then found itself being pursued by two alien um, uh, carnivorous snails. And 
the, the introducing requirements for proper study before a development like that is, is approved can be very valuable. Um, requiring that in law that certain steps be taken and that people don't simply say, well, this looks like a good idea, we'll go ahead and do it. I think that can be very valuable. Harnessing the expertise of different role players through um, legal requirements to consider and evaluate those can be very valuable. Um, you've not given us much faith in the um, capacity of treaties and legislation to deal with the issues today. But um, I just wondered, with this theme of the balance between protection of biodiversity through legislation and people and stakeholders' contribution to that legislation, um, does either have any comments on the struggles that the New South Wales government has had over the last 10 years with land clearance, which is a sort of fundamental to biodiversity, um, that culminated in that tragic murder of a compliance officer at the farm gate about, what was that, about five years ago, um, which really highlighted the conflict inherent in biodiversity protection and whether anyone's got any comments on that. New South Wales legislation specifically, having not spent any time looking at it, but certainly in many of, I do most of my field work in, in other parts of the world. Um, but in, in all of those places, I think we see really similar issues, the way in which biodiversity um, comes up against local communities, especially private land owners um, a lot of the time, um, and, and impacts on people's lives in, in really significant ways. So I think one, that's one of the other important threads of my work that, may, that I haven't mentioned, and maybe in, in a way I guess it's difficult to talk about because I, you know, as much as possible I want to champion biodiversity conservation, but the reality is that biodiversity conservation in many parts of the world is, is a pretty uh, repressive, uh, often foreign-imposed regime. Uh, there's a wonderful book that, uh, by Paige West, an American anthropologist, that I think the title captures it beautifully, Conservation is Our Government Now, um, based on her, her work in, in PNG. And I think that, that experience of local communities of being um, you know, governed by conservation um, in one of the parts of the world that I've worked in the Mariana Islands, I worked on a beautiful crow, an endangered crow. There are a lot of endangered crows around the world. Um, where uh, efforts to conserve the crow basically meant that people didn't, indigenous people weren't allocated the lands that they should have been, that they wanted to clear and for their livelihoods to develop. And, um, and you know, a, a lot of the time, those were lands that the crows had never been seen on and weren't, weren't actually likely going to use, but for a variety of you know, bad legislative <laughs> reasons, um, they, you know, this ended up impacting on their lives, which led some local people to go and target and kill crows. Um, so you know, it's often not a, not a good outcome for conservation either. So I think it's that tension between, um, you know, where conservation becomes a, a, a repressive force for local communities um, is, is another part of the story that we need to, to tell and to get better at dealing with and, and better at devising laws that, that deal with that and um, at feeding in and working with local communities on their concerns. But that's not a New South Wales-specific response. I'm sorry. If I may say very briefly, um, law 
we, I think we do put fairly unrealistic expectations on international law especially. Um, we don't look at criminal law and say, oh, well, somebody committed a murder, therefore all criminal law is useless. Or we don't look at, at labor law and say, well, um, I know somebody who was fired um, you know, unjustifiably, therefore labor law should be thrown out, it doesn't work. But we do have a tendency to look at it and say, well, you know, Russia has invaded Ukraine. International law is a complete failure. Um, for, the, for the most part, international law is working and it is fairly effective, but it's also very new and we're struggling to design um, treaties as we're struggling to design national laws that will be effective. Um, and I'll just say that in very recent years, we've seen in Australia two important reviews of legislation released in the middle of 2021 was the Samuel Review of National um, Biodiversity Protection Legislation and released in August, just gone, the Henry Review of the Biodiversity Legislation in New South Wales. And both suggest essentially that the laws are currently not operating as they should and should be at least radically overhauled if not completely replaced. Um, and one of the most important things, and it's the, the, the only point I'll really make, is that both of those reviews are very firm on the need to bring in consideration of indigenous knowledge systems and are, are suggesting very strongly, and it's not just because indigenous people now have a voice they didn't have before, it's recognition that indigenous systems of knowledge can help us to manage biodiversity better. So both of those reviews are very firm on the need for the Australian government, both at national and at state level in New South Wales, to incorporate um, Indigenous knowledge into their, um, into their legislative thinking. Um, thank you so very much. It's been so enjoyable. I have a quick question. Um, there's been some legislative sort of motions in the business world that's uh, making businesses look at biodiversity. So we're about to get another very big voice in the space. Any tips for the business world? Any words of wisdom or advice? I think it kind of speaks to that, that challenge that we were talking about earlier about communication, that even, even though things are going to change, just like they did with climate reporting and, and that change for businesses with climate reporting, now they're going to change with uh, nature reporting. And I think it is so early on that neither side really knows the, the right question to ask of the other side yet. Uh, so I think that's, that's part of the challenge for getting advice. <laughs> I have not been following the nature positive reporting um, situation very well, but it, what I have been reading doesn't leave me with a whole lot of confidence that anything meaningful is going to come out of it. Um, so I, I mean, and the philosopher in me just you know, thinks there's an awful lot of work to do in, on the categories and, you know, and, and what we even mean by nature positive or by, by, by any of these. And the, the slippery ways in which so many of these concepts get deployed and the, the finances get done around biobanking. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm not ho hopeful. So I don't know what advice I have. Other than, um, but, oh, yeah, gosh, I'll think more on some advice. Yeah.
because uh, I'm, I'm even further removed from the um, implementation of those kinds of um, policies and, and business strategies and so on, uh, being more on the, the technical side. But I would say that, um, you know, for example, amongst geneticists, the community of, of, uh, of scientists that I talk to mostly, um, we are very aware that uh, things need to be measurable um, and that we need measurements that are going to be consistent across contexts that are going to measure truly the underlying biological processes that matter. Uh, for example, if you uh, have a, a threatened population um, and we want to understand what is the resilience of that population, the long-term prospects of it, we need ways to count that, turn that into a number that is going to make sense across different contexts, regardless of what kind of data set you have, whether you have uh, loads of money to do amazing, beautiful genome sequencing, or whether you just have a little bit of money or maybe even no money and need to extrapolate from another species from the ecosystem for one of those species where you don't, don't know much about it. But those kinds of metrics are definitely something that on the technical side uh, is very, uh, there's very active conversation around, around that kind of thing. I was wondering, are there any concepts or perspectives or theories outside of your own field that is particularly surprising or useful for your own field or expertise? Yeah, I was hoping for a snail question as a French. <laughs> <laughs> uh, expertise, for, yeah, of course. I think the idea is that, uh, I mean, and it's also on the technical uh, side of things, but like there is a requirement for expertise from like a diverse range of, uh, of people and for, and. One question was about: Is there any? Uh, did, did you work with uh, with uh, other like uh, you know people with other different scientific background? In my case, I worked a lot with uh, archaeologists or ethnologists, uh, and basically the kind of thing I do is quite uh, uh, has been overlooked in the past. So people eventually looked uh, that much into uh, landscape. So I bring my expertise on this, and. Uh, other people come with different expertise, and I guess uh, you know nowadays if you want to to do something exciting but also relevant uh, for uh, for for humanity, you need to be able to make these crossovers uh, between disciplines. And if you don't, basically, you know, people have been doing that for already uh, centuries. So it's like if you want to have something that is going to be meaningful, you need to do this kind of, uh, of connection. I love this question and I could talk about it all day. Um, one of my favorite things, as is probably clear from talking about concepts, is to borrow concepts from other disciplines and to, to explore how they, um, how the same concepts get, or the same terms get used for very different um, things in different disciplines. So I, yeah, I had a book where I took a whole lot of terms that uh, have both a long history in the biological sciences and in uh, and, and the humanities and philosophy and, and ethics and thought about how they tried to bring those literatures together to see how they might help us to think differently about the environment. So it's terms like inheritance, which obviously you know, we use a lot in genetics and in other parts of, of the biological sciences, but also you know, it's a very rich term in economics and, uh, and ethics and community is another term that comes up a lot in the book and, and connects to, the, to a lot of the discussions we've been having today about the way community gets thought in, in community ecology, for example, very rarely includes humans. Humans aren't part of the community. And, and at different points in history has you know, centred on 
concepts of natural balance and so on. So there's a, there's a whole history of how community has been thought in the biological sciences, which is very different to the way that political philosophers have thought about community and you know, what constitutes a good community. So uh, I, I really love this, this question, and I think it's a very productive space to think about how concepts have traffic back and forth. And in fact, another project at the moment is thinking with biologists about what counts as, as society, as the social, and how notions of social, being a social animal, which is often how we talk about human life, um, connects uh, to thinking about the social in, in the biological sciences, work on social insects, for example. Um, there's a lot of ways that biologists think about the evolution of sociality as a thing amongst animals. Um, and there's a lot of traffic back and forth between models of the social in, in the animal world and in the human political sphere. And often with a lot of doing a lot of violence to, to both sides of that, um, where you know, humans are told we ought to organize our society in this way. And someone points to the bees as a good example of a, you know, a monarchy, so to support the idea of a monarchy. Um, but actually, you can, you know, and there has been work on this. My colleague Yulia Kint in Classics has just written a a book about uh, animals in, in the classical world, and this is one of the examples she draws on. People have been pointing to the bees as an example of pretty much every political system you can imagine um, <laughs> as a justification that, you know, here it is in nature, this is how we ought to do it. So it's not always a good thing to, uh, to, to borrow concepts or to look for role models in other places, but it's a, certainly an important thing to keep an eye on how those concepts travel. Thanks. I, I like that. Thanks for the question. Um, it's in, in, in law and legal thinking, we have a, a concept called the precautionary principle, which is intended to prevent developers and decision makers from using scientific uncertainty as a justification for proceeding with a project. And we saw this quite um, starkly in um, around 2008 in South Africa, where I was working at the time, when an important question arose on whether to allow conservation managers throughout the country to resume culling of elephants. That was the particular issue that was, was alive at the time. And this led to um, a number of hearings where the minister, this is about 2006 actually, where the Minister of Environmental Affairs had a number of sort of stakeholder workshops um, around the country and giving people the opportunity to have input. And what was quite stark was that how the debate divided into those who believed that you should cull elephants in order to protect biodiversity and those who believed you should not cull elephants in order to protect biodiversity. And both argued on the basis of the precautionary principle and argued that their interpretation of the precautionary principle was the correct one and it would have to be implied in this way. Um, my last point really, out of something like that, is that in the same way that we're realizing more and more that we can't separate individual species from ecosystems, we have to understand different species in and by their relationships with other species. So we need to see that the solutions to these problems require a biodiversity of interest groups also. We can't say this problem will be solved just by one particular group. 
our understanding of biodiversity should tell us that we have to take into account science, conservation, heritage, law, and even business. So yes, we should be, <laughs> sorry, I'm just teasing you. In fact, business is, I, I, I very often have to say to students, it's fine to recommend, you know, that we, we just stop mining or we just scrap manufacture. Realistically, it's just not going to happen. It's very easy to make recommendations that are never going to be implemented. Um, business is not going away. Mining is not going away. Our task is to manage the, um, the different interest groups. Um, I have no expertise in any of this, this area at all, so I'm just a punter. Um, but, like, so I just have, like, a general, uh, general sense that biodiversity, good. Conservation, like, also good. Um, but, like, how would I be able to champion, like, for biodiversity in a way that is relevant for, like, my local community and, like, you know, the social and cultural con um, context that I operate in? Because it's not as if, like... I'm a musician, and it's like, oh, well, no life on a dead planet. But anyway, let's rehearse from bar 10. Here we go. <laughs> like, so, for example, if someone goes to a zoo and then, like, they make those emotional connections or, you know, they read about the snails, um, like, how would you then want, you know, the everyday person to react or change their behavior? Um, yeah, that's a really good question, and that's something that we really grapple with. And I think there's a lot of people that think, you know, as an individual, can I change the world? But it's sort of the what we have to keep in mind and sort of the, the thing that we work off is that, you know, you don't need everyone to be doing everything perfectly. You just need some people to be doing some things well, and that still is enough of a groundswell to, to make a change. Um, you know, so we try to find little kind of, I suppose, introductory ways to get people, um, you know, once they've made that emotional connection and kind of ease them into that process of, um, you know, becoming aware of an issue, um, trying the issue, um, you know, making it part of your everyday life and then championing it to others. So like, for example, one of the things that we have at the zoo is um, in relation to our Sumatran tigers. So the, the issue facing them is um, land clearing and being replaced by palm oil plantations. And a result of that, there's less than 400 Sumatran tigers left in the wild. And, you know, it can be really hard as an individual to go, well, you know, again, from an economic perspective, you know, just boycotting palm oil isn't the solution to this problem because all it's going to do is drive markets towards less sustainable oil products. So, you know, you kind of have to find that balance and say, okay, well, what are some of the little things that we as individuals can do to try and influence this market? So um, the, the conversation and the message that we try to send to our guests is just to be looking for, you know, not necessarily, you know, uh, avoiding palm oil, but looking at making a choice to support sustainable palm oil and just using your everyday trip to um, the shopping, the, to, you know, to do your shopping, to just be looking at the back of packages. And um, essentially what that'll do is it drives, um, you know, the, you know, again, if we're looking at 700 million people visiting zoos, if even a percentage of those go on to change the choices that they're making, that can't influence the markets. And um, we've actually worked with a couple different companies, um, and we enable our, our zoo guests to email them to let them know that it's sort of like, oh, I looked at your, your sustainable palm oil rating, and it's, it, could, it could be better. You know, we always try to keep the messaging positive. We don't ever sit there and just slam someone and say, I really enjoy your product. I think it could be better. You know, let's 
go on this journey together, for example. But essentially what that has done is we've been contacted by a number of significantly big global corporations that have said, based on just the sheer amount of people that are emailing us and the impact that it's had on people purchasing our product, we're going to change our source of palm oil and look towards more sustainable solutions. So I think you know it can be hard to feel like, what am I as an individual going to do to make big differences? But I think as a collective, we're all really, really um, important in that, you know, a lot of that can be using our purchase power for good is I think a really simple one. And then hopefully once you in feel empowered for doing those things for yourself, you can become a champion for some of those causes um, and go on and spread the word more broadly than that in that sort of an introductory way to really kind of get people on board and feel like they're making a difference. And hopefully that will help you make those networks and those connections to, to find even further ways to, to work towards conserving wildlife and biodiversity. Just holding the mic. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have as positive an answer, so I think I'll be quiet. <laughs> oh, I, I honestly, I believe that... Um, it isn't, I don't think the right way to look at, at the situation is all hope or all doom and gloom. I, th I think we need to be realistic, which is capturing both. So even, even if you have a not so... <laughs> but to give you a, a personal perspective, for me and, and the work that I do with the university in biodiversity and kind of the challenges that I have just in my own area... I come up against that question a lot and people asking about, you know, what can I do? Uh, in my local council, you know, we have small initiatives like, you know, like being able to email on the scale that um, the Taronga Zoo has got set up. In my local area, I can't be bothered to compost. That sounds like effort to me. But there is an, a whole app where you can find someone that will compost for you and you just take your waste to them and they'll do it. You know, so there's there's little actions that, you can find and you can do, and whilst they don't, you know, reduce methane and carbon emissions by a significant amount realistically, at the end of the day, I feel better and I feel like I'm doing what I can, what's within my control uh, to make a better impact through my choices. And then, you know, hopefully I'm influencing my children to grow up and be I don't think I'll influence my dad. I think he's too old now. But, you know, then you can start to, to reach out. And if you can find a sense of control and, and things that you can do within your own lifestyle, uh, I think that can also help, you know, you feel a bit more positive about it. Because the other thing is how can you expect governments to change things and other people to change things if personally you won't change those things either? So, you know, I think, I think there's a bit a bit there that is within our control, that maybe we just push it off as too hard. Another thing that can be done is uh, regarding uh, citizen science kind of apps. There is many of them. Like, for example, uh, I know in my field, there is Coastal Snap, which is basically some cameras that you can put and take a picture of a coastline, and after it's been used by a, a marine scientist to look at the effect of erosion, but there is many of them, I guess. Uh, Taronga Zoo, is, there is plenty. You've got, like, for example, bug, bugs in my backyard. Uh, you know, and it does, it, it's not something big, but basically it's really helped scientists uh, to get an idea of how much insects uh, you see in your backyard, how it evolves through time. Uh, there is Earthwatch. I mean, there is plenty of this kind of uh, uh, citizen science initiatives that are uh, really useful. 
And uh, as you said, you know, like uh, the idea of becoming a champion in one of these things will give you the confidence after to go and, and talk with others about it. So. I think those are all great responses, and I just put in a, a plug also for, in, in addition to individual action, I think we need collective action you know, uh, and, and government change, uh, and the lesser of two evils is not a good uh, outcome um, still. So I think that, you know, at a more fundamental, um, structural, systemic level, we're on a bad track. And, and I think we, you know, I, I too would encourage people to make good consumer decisions and contribute where they can as individuals. But I think we also need to keep, keep the eye on, keep our eyes on those bigger forms of collective change that are needed and how each of us might contribute to them. And I don't think that's just a question of um, you know, voting once every few years and then that's the end of it. I think it's, you know, and, but it also doesn't just have to be activism and other forms of social change, um, it can be being a musician, um, it can be being, you know, being somebody in the arts and in creative spaces, making films, writing, doing whatever it is I think that you are passionate about that you can gather a community around to tell important stories about how broken things are uh, and what needs to be done about them. Um, I say I'm not optimistic, I, I can't be positive because I, I can't be too optimistic that that will work. Um, and that's something I, I spend a fair bit of time writing about also. Um, hopefully not in too, too self-indulgent a mode, but, um, but because I do think there are important questions, especially for young people today, about how to go on in the absence of hope or where hope becomes much harder to hold on to. Um, and so I think uh, it, there are important questions about what ethics looks like and what a good responsible relationship with the world looks like even or with a particular species even when it might be too late uh, i'm just going to return to the snails for just one moment because it was the, <laughs> the snails that i had to first start thinking about this because a lot of the species i had sort of fallen in love with over years of working on these snails there really is just no hope that they're going to be conserved um, and even if they can be conserved in captivity there's no forest for them to go back to um, and things like power failures in the refrigerated um, arc that keeps them alive mean that they sometimes die in captivity. So it became quite a difficult space to inhabit and ask what, how do you go on, especially the people who look after them on a day-to-day -day basis, how do you go on caring um, and hoping in this in dark times? And I think that is a, a real question. And the ultimate answer I came to, in sh short as I can get it, is that it's still important that we cultivate the best possible relationships and we work towards the best possible futures that are still available to us, even if we have to accept that you know, things are pretty bad uh, and are likely to get a lot worse. Sorry, that's... <laughs> I, I, I think that the way that we can advance and get good at, at trying to look after one thing, even if there's no genuine hope for it, externally to our man-made, you know, incubator for it, still becomes that bedrock of innovation and expertise to help something else. So, you know, ultimately, hopefully, <laughs> it's Pandora's box. At the bottom, there's hope. <laughs> I think there's one more question. Uh, so uh, you talked about the one-plan approach, and I'm assuming that that's just for, like, zoos around Australia. But I was wondering if you have, like, plans to... Um, 
do some partnerships with like international zoos or other international kind of reserves. And I think that goes a little bit on to the international law kind of aspect and to understand if that, if there is kind of like an effective or if there is a plan to be an effective international law around uh, zoos and uh, other countries that don't do it as like a conservation point of view, but rather than, uh, oh, come and look at this, this is really cool. And if, if there's a plan to make that a little bit more like worldwide, this kind of perspective on it. Yeah, definitely, 100%. The answer is um, yes. And uh, what the one plant approach for conservation looks like is really dependent on the species. So for example, if it's a native Australian species that's only has in situ and in situ um, conservation programs in Australia, that's sort of an approach amongst all the different organizations, all the different stakeholders that are involved looking after that species in Australia, for example. But there are many, many, many species that are um, being managed globally ex situ. So that's looking at potentially um, international breeding programs, for example. So there are lots of opportunities where, um, you know, especially in in situations where we don't have habitat to put species back into, we really need to be looking at maintaining that genetic diversity long term. And sometimes that's not possible with small populations of individuals all over the globe, like elephants, for example. You know, it's you know, quite difficult to just manage a population when you've only got a handful of them in every country around the world. So you really do need to manage them internationally as a population. And again, that's not looking at just the ex situ populations. That's also looking at how we can contribute this knowledge to conserving them in situ and the information that we can get from conserving them in situ, how we can use that to improve their husbandry. And taking those and again, making it as one voice towards conservation, whereas historically there was a bit of, here's what we want as the in situ um, biodiversity conservators of the species and ex situ, this is what success looks like for us. And they weren't always speaking the same language. So part of this one plan approach is really saying, okay, well, yes, we might be managing them in different microhabitats all over the world, but the ultimate goal is the conservation of the species as a whole. So we need to be working together. And when you have that communication, then it gives you more credibility and just a broader knowledge base to be going out and influencing other decision makers to help you on that journey as well. So that's where you can go out and start influencing people and having those discussions and building your networks and all of those things. Yep. I'll just say quickly that within its limitations, the there are a number of initiatives in international law that, that are being attempted at the moment, but in a strange way, we're seeing what you suggest happening more in national jurisdictions and influenced by the international. Um, and the, the Right for Nature movement is quite an interesting current development because what we're seeing in national jurisdictions, in New Zealand, for example, where um, through treaty law, mountains and rivers have been given legal personhood, legal status, the same thing has happened in the sub-east Asian continent, um, India, Sri Lanka, Bangladesh especially, where rivers especially are being given legal rights on a different basis, on the basis of religion and of how polluted they are. And across the world in Latin America, in, in states like Ecuador, Bolivia, and Colombia, we are seeing the same thing happening with the entrenchment of legal rights for the natural world in legislation and even in the constitution um, in um, um, Ecuador, for example, the, um, 
And there, it's, it's an actual recognition of the role of um, um, Mother Earth or Pachimama in the, um, in the world's ecology. And what's interesting is just that from very different perspectives, religious, treaty, legislation, um, different parts of the world are starting to do this and to recognize. Canada is another one where we're starting to see um, recognition of the interests of First Nations people leading to recognition of um, natural rights for the natural, uh, legal rights for the natural world. And the fact that this is happening in different parts of the world on different legal bases is, I think, very interesting because it implies that it's an idea whose time has come. Okay, thank you everybody for your questions. I would like to thank our wonderful panel. I feel like we've had a really nice, broad introduction of how you know we need to understand the scale of these processes, dived all the way down into understanding the genetics of these processes on that you know microscopic scale, and then sort of weaved our way through the human involvement and, and ultimately where we sit in it. Uh, and I think that the takeaways for me of finding the ways to communicate it, finding the ways to, to collaborate with each other, to be able to legislate these things uh, and to you know, be able to understand them to the depth that they need to be understood uh, is, is the real challenge. But even though it is pretty dire and we're in a pretty bad state, <laughs> there is hope and this hope is sitting here with all of this expertise and these people willing to give up their time for something like this where they can communicate what they're doing and their understanding to help bring us all along uh, on this hopeful journey. <laughs> so thank you very much and thank you very much everyone for coming.